Do you ever have a strange uh, belief or idea uh, when you were a kid that you, as you grew up, you got older, you know, went to school, talked to other people, you found out that what you thought wasn't actually real? Do you have any of those feelings? Um, my, my younger son, uh, youngest son, TJ, uh, believed that if you swallowed your gum, you, you probably heard this one, that it stays in your system for seven years, doesn't come out, you remember that one? Uh, and then he found out it's a complete and total fabrication. It's not, not true at all. Uh, and, I, and I figured um, he probably believed that because we probably told him that. So he had this terrible habit of swallowing his gum. <laughs> and he always had gum. And then he always swallowed it. And we're like, ah, you can't, you can't do that. So uh, probably we, um, we, we told him that. Uh, and, and then, of course, you know, he learned it wasn't true. And then he was uh, mad at us. Um, our new daughter-in-law, Brooke, TJ's new wife, she believed that uh, a Venus flytrap could grow big enough to trap a person. And she was terrified that she was going to uh, someday walk next to a giant flytrap that was just going to uh, get her. <laughs> and then that would, that would be it. Uh, Easton's grandma told him that if he sat too close to the television... He would go blind. You, you probably remember that one. If you're, you, now I think to believe that one, you had to be, you know, you got to be, you got to be a little older. You can't like, because I remember, um, and, and I don't know about the rest of you, but our first television was 13 inches, and you had to sit close to it in order to see it. Uh, but I remember my parents telling me that, oh, don't sit too close to the TV, or you're going to go blind. Um, I remember as a young kid, I think because I had older siblings, thinking um, that if you swallowed a watermelon seed, it would grow in your stomach. Did you ever hear that one? Uh, and, and I remember being very, very careful, because we, like, we always had watermelon in the summertime, and I was very careful about getting those seeds out of the watermelon before I uh, ate it. And, and I remember I, one time I swallowed one, I, I, yeah, I have this memory of as a kid realizing that I had swallowed a watermelon seed and being really nervous for like a week. Like, what, you know, laying in bed at night going, okay, is something growing in there? <laughs> Am I going to feel it, you know? Like, at what point the watermelon gets big enough that you're like, oh, I have a watermelon in my belly. Uh, I, I don't know. I, weird. You know, everybody... Everybody has things in their past that they believed as a child, but then as you grow and you learn new things, you discover new things, you find out that, yes, your parents are liars at times, um, you, you, you learn new things and then you're able to kind of let those childish things go, right? Like, you, like yes, I believed that, but okay, it wasn't true, and then we can kind of move on. Well, I think the same thing happens in our spiritual lives with our biblical understanding. As we um, learn new things, as we grow, as we study, we can see the truth more clearly. And then that, of course, gives us a clearer picture of what God is trying to say to us through his word. And that's what we've been doing in this series uh, in the Shema. We've been moving through the Shema prayer, the ancient prayer of allegiance to God that the Jews would say uh, every morning and every evening. 
Um, and we're seeing how the English words that were translated into, so we could read them, uh, they just don't fully convey the meanings contained in the original Hebrew language. And so as, as we learn the fuller meaning of each of these words, well, of course, we're then better able to understand what Moses was trying to say, and we can better understand how to apply those things to our daily lives. And that's really what we want to do. The Bible doesn't do us any good if we read it, if we memorize it, doesn't matter. We have to apply that to our lives and, and, and let it filter into every aspect of our lives if it's really going to have any benefit to us. And so uh, understanding what Moses was trying to say, what those words actually mean, so that we can better apply them to our lives, guess what happens? Then we're able to look more like Jesus every day. And I, I think, you know, we, we can maybe have the feeling of like, well, why didn't those translators do a better job? And we could kind of be angry with uh, biblical translators, but I just want to tell you, we got to have some grace. Um, translation is a, is a very difficult, it's a difficult process. And it, and it, it takes time. And, and I really think they, are, they do the best they can. But here's the problem that we run into um, today. And, I, and I've seen this happen um, uh, often in, in Scripture. Um, well, let's take the, the prayer. We just prayed with Lance. But by the way, um, Lance is uh, in the room over here, and he's praying for you. I think there was a bucket out in the lobby when you came in, uh, and he's back in the room praying while we're out here. So that's, uh, that's cool. Thank you, Lance. Um, we came up here to pray the, the Lord's Prayer. And, and how did we pray that? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Does anybody talk like that today? No. No, we don't. Unless we're reciting the Lord's Prayer, because that's how we learned it when we were kids somehow. And even like my, my parents, my dad was a pastor for 35 years. He did not preach out of the King James Version of the Bible, which is the one that has all the these and the thous and, and that kind of stuff is difficult. I think it's difficult to understand. Um, he didn't preach out of that book, but guess what? If we recited the Lord's Prayer, it was full of these and thous and hallows and these words that were like, I don't even really understand um, what that means. And so as we, as translators translated the Bible, the, the first translation is kind of the translation that stuck. And so as, as their understanding of language grows, and we learn more about it through archaeology and through just a, a broader understanding. What we're going to look at today is we just see the word appear more often in Scripture. Um, it's difficult then to kind of go back and say, okay, we're going to change this. So as we come to the Shema, and, and the first word is here, and we know that here doesn't just mean here, it means listen and obey, but if the uh, translators tried to change that now, there'd be a lot of Christian people who were really angry about that. Um, so they have to walk this kind of tightrope. So let's not be too um, terribly hard on them. It, it's a difficult process. It requires us then to study, to learn, to continue to seek the truth. And, and this is just a process. I, I think 
this process actually helps us look more like Jesus because it forces us to, to really look at God's word, to, to figure it out, to, to try and see um, what's being said in other places, to go, oh man, I, I remember uh, this word or phrase or something was talked about in this other place. And so we go back and we try to find that and fit them together. And so what can we learn from that? So I think I think this process actually helps us grow in our faith, and then, of course, we look more like Jesus every day. So I first want to remind ourselves, uh, what is the Shema? And so we'll, we'll say it together. I guess it's the day for saying things together. So uh, here it is in the ESV. Uh, join me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So um, let's recap what we have been talking about and what we've learned um, so far. First of all, the word here is the Hebrew word shema, and it means in different places to hear, to actively pay attention, to, to hear and respond. But when God uses the word Shema, he always means listen and obey. It's, it's a two-parter when we hear that word. The next word we looked at was the word love, and the Hebrew word is ahava, and it is, expresses the deepest kind of emotional connections that one person can have with another. The connection a parent has with a child, the love that's shared between them, the, the love that a spouse, uh, a one spouse has for the other. It's this deep, deep love connection, and it's not just a feeling. Ahava is an action word, and so it's love in word and deed. It's not just saying I love you, but it's demonstrating that love as well. And then we looked at the word heart, which is the Hebrew word lev, and we didn't talk about that um, very much last week, but we did talk about what it means. And so in ancient Hebrew people, they believed the heart was the center of a person's existence. Right? And so the, the heart, the center of their body, it contained their thoughts, their emotions. It was where and how they processed the world around them. It was their decision-making center. Uh, and so the heart, when we talk about the heart in, in the Old Testament, it sums up every internal process that um, we go through in, in life, everything that kind of happens in, inside. Today, again, we talk about that in the mind, the things we think about, uh, and then the heart, we talk about different aspects of that. Today, we are going to look at the, uh, the word soul, and I won't give it away um, quite yet, but I guarantee that as we dive into this word and we begin to look at how it's used, in the Old Testament and in ancient Hebrew, it will challenge, today, will challenge everything that you thought you knew about what the afterlife is, is going to be. And, and I, I say afterlife, it's not afterlife. It, it really is real life. Um, but that's typically how we think about it and, and talk about it. And so um, the English word soul has been translated from the Hebrew word nephesh. Nefesh. And that word is found over 700 times in the Old Testament. And so we've got plenty of places to look 
to help us uncover what this word really means. And we look at um, how it's were used in this verse, how it's used in, in that verse, uh, and, and how it goes, and, and then we can better understand what exactly it means. So before we start talking about what nefesh meant to the ancient Hebrew people, I want to talk about what we typically think about when we uh, hear the word soul. Because if I asked you to tell me what you thought the word soul meant, we'd probably all come up with a pretty close idea of what the soul is and what it does, and... um, and, and we may or, or may not be um, right. So our modern concept of the soul actually comes, as a lot of things do, we don't necessarily think about it, but uh, a lot of things do, it comes from ancient Greek philosophy. And so those guys like Plato and Aristotle, as they sat around and talked about life and philosophy and all kinds of things and how it worked, we get a lot of our understanding of things from them. Does she need to get that thing? Because that might be important. Okay, whatever it is is under there. I don't, I'm not paying attention. Go ahead, get it. Go ahead. I might give you a wedgie, but go ahead. It's, uh, it's okay. All right, yeah, they, oh. Okay, good job. Way to go. <laughs> so our modern concept of the soul comes from Greek philosophy, And when we think about the soul today, it actually conjures up images and ideas of uh, the non-physical, right? You talk about the soul, we're talking about the non-physical part of, uh, of, of who we are. And I think most Christians think of the soul as um, the immortal part or essence of a person, right? We, we talk about the soul, we're talking about who we actually are inside somehow. And, that, that, and, and we, we see the soul as completely separate from our physical bodies, right? They're really two different things. It, it's why in ancient Greek philosophy, um, they, they had a word, and of course it escapes me right now, but there were um, people who believed that the soul and the body, the physical body and the, and the eternal uh, mystical soul were so separated that you could actually engage in all kinds of sin physically and not have it affect your soul at all. And, and so you could, you could be a spiritual person and yet your life could, could be just in the gutter all the time. And they were so separated that it didn't really, it didn't really matter. But when we think about the soul, we think about out-of-body experiences, conversations like that. Maybe we get a mental picture of the um, ethereal kind of uh, transparent uh, image of a person, and we see it in like TV or cartoons or something. Uh, Typically, you you see like a physical body, um, maybe on a gurney or something, and then the, the soul uh, which is kind of transparent and it's floating above the body. Or maybe it's a, a, a scene of an accident or something and we see these, these images. And, and so we think typically that the soul is who a person really is and it's somehow mysteriously trapped inside of our physical body somehow. And when we die, 
um, mysteriously, our soul then is unlocked from our physical body and, and it's able to, to kind of fully be uh, released. And I, I was thinking about why, like why do we think that? Yes, it's kind of been handed down to us from ancient um, uh, ideas and, and whatever about who we are and what the soul is, but why do we think about that today? And I think I've discovered why this idea of the soul is so prevalent even, even today when we, you know, we try to understand the scriptures and, and I, I think I've figured it out. I've, I've unlocked this. I think that the vast majority of us are unhappy with our physical bodies in one way or another. And the idea of having to keep this physical body for all of eternity is just not very appealing. And so we think, hey, well, at least when I die, my soul, which is young, right? <laughs> I'm 51. I'm like, I don't think what we, Andrew and I were uh, having dinner with some friends the other night. We left and we were like, how old are they? Turns out they're only a few, like 54, 55, something like that. And Andrew, Andrea said something about like, we, they're really not that much older than us. We we just must think we're younger than we are. You feel that way? And, and so I, we have this idea that when we die and our soul is finally released, we'll get to have the body that we always dreamed of. I'll look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Not, not now, but back, Mr. Universe days, um, maybe. Uh, and, and so I think may, maybe that's why we think of the soul the way we do, because we think, man, oh, it will be a change. I won't have to worry about uh, how I look anymore. Um, if, if you remember the uh, Will Smith movie, I, Robot, um, there's a part in that movie where they talk about the ghost in the machine. And that's how we kind of look at the soul, that there's this mysterious kind of thing in there and it's kind of functioning and it affects us but it's not really a part of us it's separate somehow and that um, someday it's going to be released into um, the world and that's typically how we think of the soul I used to believe that the soul um, was the part of us who we are that actually goes to heaven when we die. But I wanna make sure we understand this, that um, the cultural idea of the soul today does not come from the Bible, okay? So all those things we just talked about, how we feel about the soul, what we think about the soul, and how it releases from our bodies, that does not come from the Bible, and it is not even close to what the word nephesh means in biblical Hebrew. And so I thought today we're going to have to unlearn a little bit of what we have learned about the soul so that we can then uh, rebuild our idea of, of this word soul with a little more biblical understanding. And so let's talk about what the Bible says about the dead, what it means to experience real life in God's presence. And so um, part of the reason we named Real Life Church Real Life Church is because, first of all, um, if, if you're not a believer in Jesus and you're just going about life, you, you think this is real life, right? This, this is it. 
and, and it's sometimes a little depressing. Like, I don't know if this isn't as great as I thought it was going to be. But when you come to know Jesus and you begin to experience life and relationships at a, at a fuller level, then you go like, oh man, this is what real life is like to be in relationship with God and with other believers and, and functioning with him and like letting him lead my life. But our real lives aren't really going to begin until Jesus comes back. And, and the Bible says we're going to know God even as we are fully known. And that's when our real, real lives are going to begin. And so um, we need to break down some of these ideas that we have of the soul first. So um, first of all, when, when God shows up to Moses at the burning bush, if you remember that story, uh, it's way back early in Genesis, uh, right before God begins to rescue Israel from Egypt and he used Moses, Moses is out tending his father-in-law's sheep and God shows up in this burning bush and, and God says to Moses, uh, he says this to Moses, he says, I am the God of your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, Jacob was the youngest. This is a father, son, father, son. And Jacob was the youngest, but Jacob had been dead like 200 years before Moses shows up and, and, and God talks to him from the burning bush. So um, uh, Joseph has been dead for a long time, but God didn't say, I'm the, I'm the God of your dead ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. He said, I'm the God of your ancestors. Well, Jesus picked up on this later in Matthew 17 when he was, um, when he was talking and, and, and he says, this. Uh, he says, this is what God said. I'm the God of your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. And then he says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so in Jesus' mind, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're not dead. They're, they're still here. Uh, you might not be able to see them, but, but they're still here. And so they're still living. In Matthew 17, when Jesus is transfigured up on the mountain before Peter, James, and John, the text tells us that two people showed up with him, Moses and Elijah, and they appeared as, as people. Jesus wasn't transfigured. If you look at the text, Jesus wasn't transfigured into some ethereal, transparent, God-like being, he was Jesus. And it just says his face shone as bright as the sun and his clothes that he was wearing appeared brighter than anybody could bleach them. He like radiated light from, but his physical form didn't change. And Moses and Elijah were there and they were not floating apparitions. They were people. They were standing there having a conversation with Jesus. We talked in the Revelation series about how when Jesus returns, we're not going to go to heaven. Our souls are not going to depart our bodies and, and go to heaven. Heaven is actually here. Heaven is the uniting of, of God's existence with our physical existence and bringing those things into perfect unity without temptation or sin. And, and so we're going to have renewed physical bodies just like there's going to be a new earth. And so you really don't have to look any further when thinking about the soul and what we're going to look like when we die or, or when Jesus comes back. You really don't have to look any farther than Jesus. Jesus dies on the cross. He's buried in the tomb. He disappears from inside the tomb. The stone wasn't rolled away for Jesus to exit. The stone was rolled away to show that he was gone. But when Jesus appears, is he a, is he a floating apparition? No. 
He's flesh and blood. In fact, he goes to great lengths to help his disciples understand and believe. He says, touch me, feel, I'm flesh and blood just like you are. Here's the scars from the nails in my hands and my feet and the spear in my side. Um, The first time he shows up, he says, give me something to eat. He wants to prove to them that he's not some soul being or spiritual being. He's a physical person, but he had spiritual uh, uh, characteristics, right? And so when we die, we think about this um, in terms of why would we be something different than Jesus was when he died? But I, I want to make sure that you uh, hear me on this because um, th- this is a lot to think about because it's not what we're typically, it's not what we grew up um, thinking or believing. And so I want you to know that my opinion about this and about what our bodies are going to be like and how we're going to function in eternity, um, my opinion does not have to be your opinion here, okay? You can make up your own mind. And since what you believe about how our bodies are going to look in eternity has nothing to do with salvation, has nothing to do with what you believe about Jesus and if he's the son of God and he lived and died and and, and lives again and he's coming back. Um, None of that is gonna get you into uh, heaven or keep you out of of heaven. And so um, this is just my opinion about these things. Now I think I've got got sufficient reason to believe that. Um, but you may believe something different, and I think that's uh, okay. Um, but I think that understanding the word nephesh will really help us understand um, more fully what Moses was saying in the Shema. So let's um, jump into that, and we'll get through the rest of it, uh, hopefully, before noon. Uh, all right. In Numbers, we won't be here that long. It's okay. Don't worry. Uh, in Numbers eleven six, the Israelites are early in their desert wandering time. We talked about that a few series ago. They've left Egypt. It's hot and it's dry in um, the desert. And they begin to grumble. And they begin to say uh, that when they left Egypt, they could eat all the cucumbers and melons and all kinds of onions and garlic. But they say, um, in, in this translation, century English version says, but we're starving out here. The literal ancient Hebrew um, says that uh, in verse six, it says, but our nephesh is dry. That's how that word is used. When we were back in Egypt, we ate melons and cucumbers and it was great and it just dripped down our faces and it was wonderful. But out here in the desert, we have nothing like that and our nephesh is dry. In Psalm 105, the psalmist is recounting the story of how God rescued Israel um, back in Joseph's day. Joseph was the 11th son of uh, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. So he's part of the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And Joseph's older brothers hate him. They sell him into slavery into Egypt. And the text is recounting this story. And the psalmist writes that um, Joseph, uh, in being taken down to Egypt, they bruised his feet with shackles and his nephesh was put in irons. That's the literal word um, used there. So the basic and general use uh, for the word nephesh is um, throat. Um, and so you're, you're going, uh, what does the throat have to do with the soul? Why in the world would they translate throat to, um, to soul? It doesn't make, and, and how do I love God with all of my throat? 
That just seems really, uh, that seems really strange. Well, just like the words we've looked at before have a basic general meaning, the word um, also has a fuller meaning that gives us a better picture of, uh, of, of how they use it. And so for the ancient um, Hebrew people, they could mean throat when they used the word nephesh, but it could mean a whole lot more than that. And so think about it this way. If you're an ancient um, Hebrew person, you have very little understanding of, of medicine and anatomy. Remember, I think it was last week I said they didn't even have a word for brain. There's not a Hebrew word for brain. Um, and, and so uh, for those people, nephesh, could mean throat, and maybe the way it was used is that uh, when you eat something, it passes through your throat, or you drink something. So the things that you need to sustain your life pass into your body through your throat. But when you speak, that comes from your throat as well. At least that's what they thought. And so a, a thought or an idea might develop in the heart, but then it comes out of the throat. They also understood that if you grab somebody by the throat, you could end their life. So uh, to ancient Hebrew culture, the throat was a pretty important part of um, the body. And so it had multiple ways that it could um, be used. Now, um, back in the uh, 80s, when I was uh, a, a kid, uh, and in uh, middle school and high school in the, in the 80s, uh, by the way, greatest uh, decade of all for uh, music and culture, clothing, things like Zumbas, Zipper, Balloon, okay, uh, awesome things. Uh, I had a pair of, uh, of Levi's when I was in high school um, that um, I, if you grew up in the 80s, you know this. Uh, you would buy a pair of Levi's and then you would put them on and you would get in the bathtub where it's full of water uh, because you wanted the uh, pants to, to perfectly fit your uh, body. Like you wanted them as tight as you possibly could get them. And um, so what would happen is you'd, you'd wear out the, the backside of your jeans. And so uh, I had my mother um, sew on a uh, uh, butterflies, uh, material butterflies on the back of my 501s, and I wore those to school. I was pretty cool. Uh, anyway, um, there, was, there was a word in the, in the 80s that had multiple meanings. Um, the word wicked. We understand the word wicked means evil, right? She says, oh, that's wicked. That's like evil. But in the 80s, it, it became the word for cool. If you said, oh, man, that's wicked. That meant it was really cool. You really uh, liked it. So we know that words can be used for different things. Today's language stinks. Uh, if you're a young person today, you wor use words like, um, Jared knows about these because he's young at heart. You use the word bussin'. What in the world does that mean? Just pulled that out, like made up something. What? Yeah, it means really good. And it's only used for, for what is it used for, Jared? Food. If, if something tastes really good, it's bussin'. <laughs> stupid, stupid. Okay, anyway, language is difficult. We determined that um, um, last week. So 
Let's go through a whole bunch of ways that the word is used. In Genesis 46, 15, um, we're told that uh, nephesh means people. Uh, Jacob's family went down from um, uh, promised land down into Egypt, and the text says there were 33 nephesh that went uh, with him. In, um, In Numbers, uh, the word murderer is actually translated from nephesh slayer, which is, I think, interesting. Okay, uh, Deuteronomy, a kidnapper was a nephesh thief. <laughs> I think these are, I don't know, these are just uh, funny. Okay, in Genesis chapter 1, in verses 20, 21, and 24, the word nephesh is used. And it refers, first of all, to uh, tiny sea animals and birds, and then to larger sea creatures, and then to land animals uh, and insects, and they all are called living nephesh. So all animals are living nephesh. And then in Genesis 1:28, God gives humanity um, dominion over all living nephesh is the way that that's translated. In Genesis 2-7, where we get the retelling of creation of of man and woman, of of humanity, uh, God breathes into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and he becomes a living nephesh. So a a living thing, plant or animal, if it breathes, I'm not plant or animal, uh, animal or person, if it breathes, it is a living nephesh. And then in Leviticus 21 11, the priests were forbidden to come in contact with a dead nephesh, which is a corpse. Um, and so what does all of this uh, uh, mean? Well, um, it means that uh, in the Bible, people don't have a nephesh. Uh, remember, it's translated soul. People don't have a soul, a nephesh. They are a nephesh. And so a nephesh is a, a, a living, breathing, physical being. Now, the ancient biblical authors do talk about the Bible existing uh, or people existing after death as they're waiting for the resurrection, but they never use the word nephesh to describe them. And so while nephesh is translated in the English as soul, the word doesn't refer to some ethereal existence in another plane Um, It really just refers to a living, breathing organism. And so ancient people also used the word nephesh to describe themselves. In Psalm 119, 175, the psalmist writes this, let me live that I may praise you. But if you look at the literal translation, it actually reads this, let my nephesh live that it may praise you. And it was almost like the person is talking in the, th- in the third person, right? Like that's kind of um, strange. Uh, and so they refer to themselves as a, a nephesh. And by using nephesh, the writer refers to their entire being. So it's not just the heart. It's not just the body. It's not just the, the mind. They wanted every aspect of their physical existence to offer praise to God. In the Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verse 1, and that's the naughty book in the Bible, if, if you're not uh, aware. Uh, it's the love book, and there's a lot of interesting language. Uh, guys, if you ever got on a date with her and, and you want to, you know, you want to, uh, just go to Song of Solomon and just copy some things out on your phone and just read them to her. It's, it, 
That doesn't work for me, but might work for you. Uh, so uh, anyway, it's the, it's, the, it's the love book there. And so the woman in Song of Solomon refers to her male lover as the one my nephesh loves. And we get that, right? Because when you're in love, it's not, just a, it's not just a mental thing. You're not just like, oh, I love this person. Let's get married. It affects every part of your body, right? It changes uh, physiology in your body. And when you're close to them, your heart starts to beat faster and, and it consumes your thoughts and everything. So it takes, your whole body is involved when you fall in love with somebody, but here's my favorite use of the word nephesh, I think. It comes from Psalm uh, 42. It's actually, I think, verses 1 to 3. And the text is, is this, as the deer pants for water, and, and in, the, in the language we read it in, as the deer pants for water, so my soul pants after you. Uh, my, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. But again, in the original, as the deer pants for streams of water, my soul pants for you. Now, what did we say the first usage of the word nephesh was? Throat. If a deer is thirsty, their throat is parched and they need water. And so there's this very physical utilitarian use for the word nephesh. But then he kind of changes it into this metaphor. And he says, just like my throat is dry and I need water, when my body is dry, my soul is dry, when all of my being is dry, my nephesh thirsts for the living God. And so we can be thirsty in a physical level with our throat, but then we can use it as a metaphor for our whole being as we long for God in relationship. Now the folks of the Bible Project said it um, this way, to love God with your whole nephesh means to devote your whole existence to your creator. The one who gave us these amazing bodies in the first place, um, offering our entire being, everything that we have with all of its capabilities and limitations in an effort to love God and to love others. That's really what the word nephesh means. That's what Moses meant when he said, love God with all of your soul. But how do we do that? How do we love God with all of our Nefesh. Let me give you um, a couple of examples. In 2011, um, I ran with my oldest son, Trevor, the uh, Oklahoma City Memorial Marathon. Yes, I ran it. I finished it. Um, it's hard to believe now, but it actually happened. I have pictures. Uh, when I began training for that in uh, 2010, late 2010, I remember I got on the treadmill at the Y. I was going to do, it was my first day of training. I was going to do a, a 5K, 3.1 miles. And I, I got on it and I was not going very fast. I was just jogging. And uh, a, a couple minutes into that jog, I had to stop and walk. And, and then I caught my breath and then I jogged a little bit and then I stopped and then I jogged a little bit and I stopped. And that first day I thought there is no way on this earth that I'm going to be able to go for 26.2 miles. There's just no way it's going to happen. But as I continued to train and I went longer on the treadmill, went longer on runs, I, I did... Um, fartlets where you walk and you sprint and you walk and you sprint. As I did those things, guess what happened? 
My body got stronger. My lungs were better able to carry oxygen to my body. And, and by the end of that training, I could basically sprint a 5K without stopping at all. I could, I could run and, and I could run um, far. I was doing 10, 12, 13, uh, 16 miles on a Saturday run and able to just keep going the whole time. And often when I would be out there alone on the pavement, uh, running out wherever, I would think about how God created these incredible bodies that could, um, when we put them under pressure, they don't collapse, they actually get stronger. And as I would run, I would just worship God as this like, man, I can't believe that you have done this and you've created us this way to just get stronger as we put ourselves um, through these kind of things. When Easton runs uh, uh, the sound or he does communion talk, when Tristan and Andrea sing, when Trevor plays the drums, when TJ climbs a tree and, and trims it um, back, they are worshiping Jesus with their nefesh. When Trent draws, he's using a creative ability and talent that God has given him. He's using his nefesh to worship God. We're using these incredible and diverse gifts that God has given us to worship him. And so how do we love God? Remember, love, um, which is love not just in word, but in action as well. How do we love God with all of our nefesh? We use our entire body to serve him. When we... When we look more like him every day, when we care for others, when we pray for others, when we, when we share, when we carry the burdens of others, when we, when we help, when we serve, all of those things, we're worshiping God with all of our nefesh. We're using everything that God has given us to worship him in that way. And so let's go back to uh, the Shema as we wrap up. The word here, means to listen and to obey. And so Moses says, listen and obey. Don't just hear, but, but hear and then heed. The Lord, our God, He is God alone. There is no other. And so we should love God through our language and our lifestyle with all of our heart, with our thoughts and emotions, with our decisions, our choices, our personalities. And we should love God with all of our soul, meaning our whole selves, our physical abilities, our limitations, the whole of our life and our being. And we should love God with all of our strength or might. And that's what we're gonna cover next week as we wrap up the Shema series. Let's pray. God, thanks for loving us. Thank you for all that you give to us. Thank you for these incredible bodies that you have given us, even though they age, even though they sometimes don't work the way we want them to, even though they sometimes don't look the way we want them to, help us to use all of these incredible bodies that you've given us, every part to worship you, to let you be the center of our lives, not just in the way we think, but in the things that we do, that, that our whole nefesh, our whole body and our whole heart might be devoted to you, to love you, to serve you, to love others like we love ourselves. God, help us to do that as you give us your strength. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right. Just a few announcements before uh, we end today's service. Um, we'll see if uh, they come up. But I know the first one is women's conference. That is this Friday through uh, Sunday. Uh, so you can register for all three of those days, or you can just do a couple, just depending on your schedule, of course. Uh, 